I didn't think I was too amplified there. Let's just review uh, before we get into today's text last week, because the two sermons really do work together. We're taking a look at some important themes that Luke lays as a groundwork for his gospel. So last week we looked at four major themes. We looked at the motif of the barren mother. Uh, We looked at the temple, the Holy Spirit, and the fact that John, who was promised to Zechariah and Elizabeth, was the promised Elijah, that he was coming as, as the last old covenant prophet to tell the world that the Messiah was here. Just very quickly, the barren mother motif. God decided in his sovereign wisdom to bookend the old covenant with two barren couples that were advanced in years past the age of being able to bear children. So he started in Genesis 12 with Abraham and Sarah. We get into Luke 1, and we have a very similar couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we spoke about how this reminds us that, that God brings life from where there once was death. And that, that really is the, the primary theme of what God is doing in salvation history. The sin of humanity introduces death. On the day that you eat that fruit, you shall surely die. Left to ourselves, we will die, not just spiritually, but physically. Then we'll be condemned to eternal exile, separated from God forever. So it's fitting, then, that at the beginning and the end of the Old Covenant, God takes an old couple that is past the age of being able to bear children and says, I'm going to bring a son from your womb, and he will be a key player. Isaac, born to Abraham and Sarah, and John, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, Both become forerunners of the Messiah. Isaac is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Jesus. So if we were to go back into Genesis and just take a look at the life of Isaac, we would learn something about Jesus. And in that sense, Isaac is a forerunner to the Messiah, a picture of Jesus Christ. John likewise is a forerunner to the Messiah. He announces the coming of of the Messiah. In this way, he is the fulfillment of the prophetic office. That every prophet both pronounced judgment for sin, but also the hope of a Messiah. And John is the climactic prophet of the Old Covenant. Second theme that we looked at was the temple. Now, a temple is just the place where God meets with humanity. So wherever you have a manifest presence of God, meeting with humanity, there you have a temple. The glory of God had departed from the temple before the exile in the 6th century BC. Some 70 years later, Israel was restored back into the land and they rebuilt the temple. But, and this is very important for what happened in Luke 1, the glory of God never filled the temple again. So so there was this new temple, but it remained an empty building. It, it, It was the center of the the worship life of Israel, but the manifest glory of God never came back into the second temple, which makes the appearance of Gabriel to Zechariah so promising, so hopeful. It wasn't the glory of God that filled the temple, but God from heaven, and Gabriel said this, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and he has sent me here to this place. What place? He was right to the right of the altar of incense, right at the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies to say that the Messiah would come. So God sent an ambassador to meet with humanity at the most holy place on earth 
in the temple. That, that's a note of hope, and it's something that we cannot miss. And we're going to develop that as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Thirdly, we looked at the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit has been active in the world since before creation. That, that is the triune God who created the world. The Spirit hovered over the waters back in the very first verses of the book of Genesis. And yet, for many of us in the church, we forget that his ministry was throughout the Old Testament, that his ministry was throughout the life of Christ. And we think that the Holy Spirit makes his appearance, his, his entry into the world in Acts chapter 2, but that just is not the case. And, and as we go through the Gospel of Luke, look for, for the, the primary profile that Luke gives to the Holy Spirit as we go through. And then finally, we said that this child promised to Zechariah would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. In fact, he would not just be a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit. He would be the promised Elijah. And Elijah's ministry was one of turning Israel away from their double-heartedness, away from worshiping Baal, but to worship the one true God. And that's exactly what John the Baptist came to do, to turn the nation Israel and all of the nations away from worshiping false gods and to prepare them to worship the one true God in the Messiah who was to come. This week we're going to continue to look at these themes, uh, specifically the first three, the barren mother, the temple, and the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be looking at the theme of Elijah for one very important reason. And, and i just footnote this for you right now. If you go back... Uh, the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, and he will be great before the Lord regarding John. He will be great before the Lord. In fact, he will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, a great man. To Mary, the angel Gabriel says that he will be great. And, and that title, he will be great, is reserved for God alone. So even there, the angel Gabriel is declaring that this is not one among many great men. This is the great one, God Almighty himself. So, so in the, we are carrying forward this, this theme of Elijah, except that uh, Jesus is so much greater than John. He's not one like Elijah. He is God Almighty himself. With that sort of review of last week, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. What we're going to do is I'm going to read through this text, making a few notes as we go through, and then we'll end our time by looking at those three themes, the one of the barren mother, the temple, and the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, sixth month of what? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So we're looking at the relationship between the two pregnancies. In the beginning of the third trimester of Elizabeth, who was pregnant miraculously with John, the angel Gabriel was sent again from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. A couple of notes here. Uh, Gabriel, you'll notice that it's the same angel that met with Zechariah. Gabriel makes three appearances in the Bible, one to Zechariah, one to Mary, and the third, do you know where it is? To Daniel. And, and what is Daniel all about? 
It's about promising the end of the age, the beginning of the fulfillment of the old covenant. There is going to be coming a king, one like the Son of Man, who receives his authority right from the throne of the Ancient of Days. And, And you're going to have four empires rule over you, but... When the one like a son of man comes, his kingdom will be greater than every other kingdom and his kingdom will last forever. It seems like Gabriel has this mission from God to announce the coming of the Messiah to Daniel, to Zechariah, and now to Mary. If you are an Old Testament uh, Jewish believer, the, the fact that Gabriel is the messenger is very, very important. The other thing I want you to see here is that Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This is not to some big important town, but Nazareth was some backwater place that people hadn't even heard of. It was just a small little place up in Galilee. And to whom did Gabriel go? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Joseph is the one from the house of David. So again, if you're a first century Jew, you're saying, ah, Joseph from the house of David, there's hope now because the Messiah is coming from the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came and he said to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This is important. I don't know how many of you may have Roman Catholic background or how many of you uh, know people who are Roman Catholics. This, This verse gets misinterpreted by the Roman Catholic Church. And they say that she is filled with favor. That is, she is full of grace. That the grace somehow is residing in her, is her property, and then she can dispense it. That's not what this is saying. What does the angel say to Mary? Don't be afraid. Because you are the recipient. You have found favor with God. It's God's grace. He is the one who distributes the grace. And he has poured out his grace on you. And behold, because of this grace, because of the favor which comes from God to you, not from Mary to anyone else, but from God to Mary, who is the recipient of God's grace and favor, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. To remember that Luke was writing in Greek. And so the Greek name for Jesus is Jesus. Jesus, which is where we get the English Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So Jesus is the English form of the Greek name of the Messiah. But Jesus in Greek is just the Greek of Yeshua in Hebrew. Yeshua is what in English? Yeshua, Jeshua, Joshua. And this is very important. So again, put yourself in first century mindset. If you're in the first century mindset, who's the Joshua that you know of from your scriptures? It's the one who took over for for Moses. So, So God through Moses sent the law. Was Moses permitted to take the people into the promised land? No. And I know it's because he struck the rock and he had violated what God had commanded him to do. But, I mean, God's grace could have overlooked that. God's grace is sufficient to say, you know what, Moses, you had a bad day. 
You've done so much. You're 120 years old. You've been serving me for 40 years. I just want you to just finish the job, take the people into the promised land, and, and then that will be the end, and then I'll take you to myself. But that's not what God did. He says, your time is done. You've done what I wanted you to do. Because Moses is so closely linked with what? With the law. So God raised up a man, and his name was Joshua. Yeshua, Jesus. Pick your language. And Joshua means the Lord saves. And so a new man with the name the Lord saves led God's people into the promised land. Now this is important. Why? What is the mission of the Messiah? The mission of the Messiah is not to condemn us under the law. The mission of the Messiah is to come and to lead us into the promised land. Uh, that, That Jesus has actually come full of grace and truth to lead us into the eternal promised land. And that eternal promised land has multiple phases. We'll, we will, at one point, unless the Lord returns, we'll go up into heaven. That's sort of the waiting room for the promised land. But, but what we're told is God is going to recreate this entire cosmos. Uh, he's going to give us a new heavens and a new earth. And at that point, the new Joshua, the Messiah, the real true Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, again, pick your language, will lead God's people into the new heavens and the new earth, which is the eternal promised land, fulfilling what God called Joshua to do. That's why it's so important that, that it's God who names Jesus. I mean, uh, who knows what Mary and Joseph would have named Jesus, but Gabriel's very clear here to Mary. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that the angel speaks directly to Joseph and says his name will be Joshua. You've got you to take all of this Old Testament theology and understand it in light of what the Messiah came to be and to do. Verse 32, and he will be great. Instead of no one except for God himself. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, if we had eyes to see it, and this could occupy entire sermons, there's two allusions here to the Old Testament. He will receive the throne of his father David. That's a direct allusion back to 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that your offspring will sit on your throne and his kingdom will be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, the heart of the Old Testament as far as the promises to God's people. And then you have his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. This is another reference to Daniel chapter 7. That though there will be empires that come and go, when one like the Son of Man comes, he will establish an eternal kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, so Luke's gospel is just filled with, with, with these allusions to the Old Testament, all of these promises coming true, even as Gabriel speaks them to Mary. And you have to wonder, do you think Mary knew these allusions? Do you think she knew what the angel was saying? Do you think she knew what was about to happen in and through her? Of course she did. She knows that this is the promise of all of God's promise, or the fulfillment of all of God's promises coming to pass. And so Mary asks a very important question. How will this be? 
I'm a virgin. I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? I've never been with a man. How is God going to do all of this since I am but a humble virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. See, there it is. Or there he is, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to do this. He will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. If you, if you underline in your Bible, some people do, some people don't. At the very least, make a mental note, I'll overshadow, underline that. We're going to get to that. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her, is in her old age, and yet she has conceived a son. So this is the sign. You want to know that these things are true? I, God has already done the impossible for your cousin Elizabeth. She's past the age of childbearing. You know that, Mary. And yet she has already conceived a son. In fact, she's in uh, the sixth month with, uh, with her child, even though she had been called barren. She's about to enter her third trimester. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's an amazing text. The things that God have done. And what we have to guard ourselves against, what, what I have to guard myself against uh, preaching this text, is how familiar it has become. I mean, every Christmas we think about it, we talk about it, we sing about it, we, we set up our nativity sets. And, and we know Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph. She was a virgin and she went to Bethlehem and there was no room at the inn. And he was born and angels sang. And uh, yes, we get it. But have you ever paused uh, recently to think about how preposterous this is? I mean, can we not just join with Mary and say, how in the world are you going to do this? She's a virgin. Virgins don't conceive and have children. I, my prayer is that this Christmas, you know, all of us would just pause to think about how amazing this is, that, that God Almighty, though, like I said, He could have rent open the heavens and come down in a display of power and said, I'm God. You must believe in me. I will reign over you. He could have. I mean, in fact, that was the expectation from Daniel 7. One like the Son of Man will come on the clouds. Uh, the expectation that was that the Messiah would actually open up the heavens and come on the clouds. And God, in a great display of power, would say, I'm God, and now you must worship me. And he would overthrow all of the, the uh, empires that had ruled over his people Israel. But that's not how God does it. He, he comes to a virgin in a backwater place called Nazareth. He says, uh, God Almighty is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in your womb. Now, if you're married, you think about all the social implications to this. I mean, people are going to think I'm a sinful woman. I'm betrothed to a man. We have not yet come together. He's going to wonder. Like, how am I going to explain this to him? We're going to be ostracized, and yet that you're telling me that this is how you're going to fulfill Scripture? This is how you're going to come into the world, God? Precisely. It's amazing. So the familiarity of this text can be our enemy. Just invite God to help it to become unfamiliar. Revel in, in just how amazing it is what God has done. And remember that nothing is impossible for God. 
For the rest of our time together, what I want to do is, is take a look at the, these themes of the barren mother, the temple, and the Holy Spirit. So, so let's acknowledge up front, this is, this is a historical account. That's number one. We're not going to be looking too much and emphasizing that over and over again. This is a historical account. Uh, number two, that the virgin birth is very important because it emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. There, there's no earthly biological father. Though Joseph is the father, the one who gives Jesus the messianic line, the line of David. But now let's just take a look at the barren mother, the temple, and the Holy Spirit. How these three themes work them what, themselves out in this preaching text. Barren mother. Well, first of all, let's just acknowledge that Mary is the opposite of a barren mother, right? Uh, not only is she not barren, she's, she's never even attempted to conceive a child. Um, something that I can't actually relate to, but there are some people, and I've heard it said, that they just have to wash their clothes together and they get pregnant. And God just fills their house with kids. Well, we'll take that and multiply it by infinity. And that's what's happening here, right? This is a, a very unbarren woman, right? She, she conceives without even trying. She's, she's a teenager. She might have been 12 or 13 years of age. Uh, it's not un, um, unusual for a woman in, in this historical context to be married at the age of 13. That, that was the age when you passed from being a child to an adult. They didn't have this prolonged adolescence that we have in our cultural context. So she's pregnant as a young teenager without ever trying to conceive as a virgin. And yet we have to see that from the very beginning, this motif of the barren mother, God has always been working toward this moment with Mary. She is the fulfillment of the barren mother motif. Let me explain it to you this way. There are levels of impossibility in the barren mother motif. So you have women who are barren, but they're still in the age of childbearing. And then God says that he will help them to conceive and have a child. But, but from a purely scientific point of view it's not impossible what happens to them so you think about people like rebecca and rachel and ruth and hannah and samson's mother all, all of these women it wasn't inconceivable that they would bear a child even though they hadn't for a long time so they were barren but still in the age of childbearing there and that means that the children born to them they're I almost don't even want to say that they're miraculous children. They're God-given children, and God pr uh, promises their conception in advance of their birth. So all of them become key players in salvation history. You have Jacob, Joseph, Benjamin, Obed, who's the grandfather of King David, Samuel, and Samson. These are all unlikely children. They're all promised children. God has a hand in it, as he has in the birth of every child. But they're not physically impossible sons. That's the first level of impossibility. Not impossible. Barren women who cease to be barren and conceive within the right time frame. Then you have Sarah and Elizabeth. This is more unlikely. In fact, it's physically impossible without an act of God for these women to conceive. Both are barren and past the age of childbearing. They never conceived when they were within the age of childbearing. We're told very explicitly that they're past the age of childbearing. So it's a physical impossibility for them to conceive. And yet, they still conceive with the help of a man, 
Abraham and Zechariah are still full participants in what God chooses to do miraculously in and through them. So that's the second level of impossibility. But this motif comes to its absolute climax in the impossible of impossible. That is, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Which means that Jesus, the ultimate player in salvation history, the one on which everything hangs, he fulfills this, uh, this motif of the barren mother by being conceived in the most miraculous, the most impossible way imaginable without the help of a man. Now, you might ask, what is God's preoccupation with barren mothers? Why is it so important every step along the way in salvation history, especially at the beginning and then when, when salvation history sort of flares up as in the middle with King David, and then at the end you have these barren mothers that are conceiving? We have to remember that the promise in Genesis 3.15 is what? To the woman who, who sins as God is cursing the serpent, the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. That, that he will stomp on the ser- serpent's head. And so from that point forward, what are we doing in the Old Testament as we're, we're trying to understand biblical theology, what God is doing, the gospel? We're trying to trace the seed of the woman from Eve to the Messiah, to the one who will see this through. You see, the gospel is not a philosophy. It's not just a good idea. It's, it's not that, that some philosopher sat down and said, if I was God and I had to think about a good idea about how I'm going to bring salvation, this is how I would do it. No, the, the gospel is the way in which God works, works out salvation through a line of sinful people. He accentuates what he's doing at the beginning, the middle, and the end with barren mothers. So that it is absolutely clear to us that God is in it. Absolutely clear to us with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As you see the the difficulty that especially Sarah and Rebecca have conceiving. God is in this. We need a seed. We're having trouble conceiving. God is going to do it. He's going to bring it about. So we see the beginning. We see it climaxing in in David. And we see Ruth was unable to conceive for 10 years. Then Obed is born. And then at the very end. So we can see what God is doing. And we're reminded that salvation then is entirely an act of God. We didn't just happen to procreate until we got to one that was good enough to save us. In fact, we couldn't, even, uh, we couldn't even bring the next generation into the world without the active help of God. Salvation depends on one generation after another. God says, without me, this is not going forward. Without me, this is not going forward. Climactically, with a virgin conception, without me, the Messiah will not come into the world. And it's humbling for us, right? It just reminds us we, we are entirely dependent on God. He is the actor. He is the mover. He is the savior. We are the rebels. We are the ones that need salvation. We are the dependent ones. It also so brilliantly, as I said last week, captures the theme of the gospel. That the gospel is all about life conquering death. 
God created the universe, and he created humanity to be the apex of his creation, and he gave us authority over all things. He gave us dominion. He, he said, I want you to go out and help that which I created good. In fact, it's very good. I want you to go out and help it to flourish. And what did, what did we do? In God's good, very good creation that was filled with life, we introduced death. That's what we did. That's our contribution. So, so here we are, God's vice regent. So we say, oh God, I see this, this wonderful universe filled, teeming, overflowing with your life. And, and we're just going to be selfish and we're going to introduce death. The barren womb reminds us of that. We are the agents of death. But God is greater. And God says, in spite of your sin, which introduced death, on the day that you do that, you shall surely die. In spite of that, I'm going to work through you sinners. And I'm going to bring life back into that which I created. And I'm going to create it or recreate it good, very good. In fact, I'm going to make it glorious. That's what the gospel is all about. It's, about. it's about life being handed over to death and then God taking it back and saying, out of death, I'm going to bring life. And I'm going to do it through you, human beings. In order to do it through you, men and women, I'm going to have to become one of you. Because I'm the life giver. I'm the source of all life and light and goodness. It's all, it's all wrapped up in this theme of the, or motif of the barren mother. We, we offer barrenness, God fills our barrenness with life. We offer death and darkness. God fills our life with a Messiah child who brings life back. We are reminded at the beginning and the end that, that sons who are key players in salvation history come from tomb-like wombs, which itself is a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection from the grave. In fact, when you, when you see Jesus resurrected from the tomb, that is the ultimate final fulfillment of this barren mother motif. The tomb, like a womb, holds a dead man. And out of that dead tomb, which is, you know, the, the, the fulfillment of this motif of a dead womb, comes a man and with him life. It's beautiful. What I love about what Luke does here, though, because he's introduced that so clearly with Elizabeth in last week's preaching text. In this week's preaching text, Mary's womb is not pictured like a tomb. Mary's womb is, is sketched out for us as a temple. That brings us to our second theme from last week. Take a look at verse 35. Mary had said in verse 34, how will this be? I'm a virgin. How, how are you going to give me a son? How are you going to fill my womb? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The language there, this overshadowing language, if you were to read the Greek Old Testament, so Jews lost their ability to read Hebrew, so God in his mercy, translated it through, uh, through translators into Greek. In the Greek Old Testament, 
This word overshadow, the same Greek word is used when the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, fills the tabernacle. When the Shekinah glory of God fills the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that's exactly what the angel Gabriel says. The Shekinah glory of God is going to fill your womb and make it into a temple of the living God. Now remember, the temple had been empty for some 500 years, 600 years, right? And God doesn't come and fill the temple. He sends an ambassador to Zechariah right at the curtain at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, which was the place where God's Shekinah glory was supposed to manifest itself. That's where God in his manifest presence was supposed to dwell. But God doesn't come to Zechariah and fill the Holy of Holies. He bypasses the temple in Jerusalem and he comes to a little young virgin in Nazareth of Galilee and says, now I'm going to make your womb into a temple, into a holy of holies. Flip back to Exodus chapter 40. I just want you to see that this is exactly what's happening to Mary. At the very end of Exodus, the second half of the book of Exodus is all about the instructions for the tabernacle. So God says, I want you to build a, a, a portable temple called the tabernacle. And, and then all of that information is repeated. It's, it's kind of dry if you're just not looking at the theology and just looking at the content of those chapters. But at the very end, we have this wonderful moment where God's glory fills the tabernacle. As I'm about to read this, I want you to be picturing Mary. Because what God does here at the end of Exodus in the tabernacle, and he later does it, I believe it's in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon um, consecrates the temple, he does for Mary in Nazareth. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That, that word in the Greek Old Testament is overshadowed. It's the same word. So, so the tabernacle is built, Moses prays, and the glory of the Lord overshadows the tabernacle, fills the tabernacle. And so great was the glory that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's repeated there. Overshadowed the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." implications here mary very literally becomes the tabernacle mary becomes the temple of israel so so yes there are still priests in jerusalem doing their thing up in 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 jerusalem at the physical temple but god has relocated to the womb of mary I love that. It's just so profound and wonderful. Uh, Luke goes back to this theme at the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke 9, verse 34, just listen as I read this. Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John up the mountain. He wants to show them a little bit more of his glory. And he's transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah are there. I mean, we don't have time to get into that. But you see Elijah popping up at interesting times. So you want to pull on that thread and see what that's all about. 
So, so he's transfigured himself. He's just sort of opening the door a little bit to who he really is, a little bit of his glory, and he becomes dazzling white. Verse 34, and as they were saying these things, so as they were beholding these things and watching Jesus in his transfigured state speak with Moses and Elijah, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. John 1, chapter uh, Is it 14? The word became flesh and tabernacled among them. You got to connect all these themes. Temple, tabernacle, incarnation. So Mary becomes, while she's pregnant, the tabernacle of God. But really it's Jesus in her womb who is that tabernacle, that temple. Why? What is the definition of a temple? Do you remember I said it earlier this morning? The temple is where God meets with humanity. And God has never more fully met with humanity than in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because he is fully God and fully man. God meeting with men. In the man, Jesus, the Messiah. So Mary's womb literally becomes the holy of holies. She becomes a tabernacle or temple for God. Wherever she goes, think about this. Wherever Mary went for those nine months of her pregnancy, there went God. Wherever Mary went, there went God. In Exodus 40, you remember that uh, whenever the, the cloud lifted, then they would pack up the tabernacle and they'd follow the cloud. Then they'd set up the tabernacle again. Well, sort of think about that, but it's only in reverse. Wherever Mary went, there went the cloud. There went the glory. There went God. In her womb. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. I think that if you if you have Roman Catholic um, friends or family, it would be very helpful if you could just admit that Mary is the mother of God. No, she did not create God. She it was not her grace or her her goodness that gave rise to the conception of Jesus in her. But when we say that Mary is the mother of God, what we're really doing is we're not saying anything about Mary. She's a sinful woman that needed to be saved like the rest of us. I I get that. But if she's not the mother of God, then Jesus isn't God. Because she's the the mother of Jesus. So this Christmas, if if you have some loved ones who are in the Roman Catholic Church, just go up to them and say, you know what? Mary is the mother of God. And then they're like, yes, great, welcome. And you're like, well, hold on. Let's... Let's talk about it. What does it mean that Mary is the mother of God? And then you go back to this text and you show how she's the recipient of God's grace. She's not the giver of God's grace. And then you talk about that the fact that she's the mother of God says everything about Jesus and really nothing about her. Except that she is the one through which God came into the world. Imagine what it must have been like to be the mother of God. Imagine what it must have been like. Now, Jesus was without sin. I imagine he did not prompt any morning sickness. I don't know, but it's probably an easy pregnancy. I I wasn't there, didn't do it. I know that the birth was still probably very painful. But but I'm just wondering, uh, even if it was a difficult pregnancy, which I doubt it was, 
even if, imagine just, even if Mary didn't fully understand it, knowing that the glory of God filled her womb. How do you think that impacted the way that Mary lived her life for those nine months? Mothers, any of you who have conceived and bore a child for nine months and then had that wonderful experience of bringing that little person into the world, uh, didn't you eat differently? Didn't you care for your body just a little bit differently because you knew that it wasn't just about you anymore, it was about you and the child that you were carrying? Now imagine if the child in your womb was the Holy One, God Almighty. Ah, Mary was still a sinner. But do you think she wasn't persuaded to pursue greater holiness while she carried the Son of God in her womb? In the same way that, that mothers who are bearing children eat differently and care for their bodies a little bit differently? Now, men and women, I know this takes a lot of creative energy if you're a man. Just think about for a moment, what if, if you had had that experience that Mary had? Would it change the way you lived your life? Would you be drawn to live a life of greater holiness if God Almighty was in your womb? This brings us to our third point of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Luke 1, 14 and 15 that the Holy Spirit filled John from conception. And directly related to that, Elizabeth, to make the point that I just made, was told she must not drink wine or strong drink while she was pregnant. Why? Because the son in her was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you might think, well, it's sort of a no-brainer that when you're pregnant you don't drink wine or strong drink. But, but not necessarily. If it's, uh, wine is a part of your, of your regular diet at that time may have been that a pregnant woman would still drink some wine, but she was told not to. The, the son inside of you is filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, not with wine and, and, and strong drink. We see that. We're told here in Luke one thirty-five that the virgin conception was made possible by the active work of the Holy Spirit. How will this be? I'm a virgin. How, how is God going to give me a, a child? Well, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will bring this about. Now, have you considered lately, recently, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you too were born of the Holy Spirit? 1 Peter 1, verse 23 says, You have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The seed of God through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. And the Holy Spirit takes the good news of the Gospel and takes it and implants it into our hearts. And we are conceived. You've got to think about the biological metaphor here. Not with imperishable seed, the seed of a man, but the seed of God. Carried by the Holy Spirit, implanted in your heart. And we are conceived as new people. We are born again, literally. And, and, and without getting too graphic or into all of the details, when we say that we're born again, I don't, uh, why is it that we sort of forget about what happened to help us to be born the first time? Take, take all that you know about biology physically and, and help that, use that to help you to understand what it means to be born again. 
were conceived of the Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. From that point forward, in fact, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Should that not change the way we live? Perhaps. Now think about Mary. This is an important image. Mary, with child, her womb is the new holy of holies. That motivated her, I am sure, to holier living, though she was still a sinner. Because she was a temple of God. Do you see where we're going? More than having been born again by the Holy Spirit, we, like Mary, carry God in us wherever we go. And, and so it's wonderful to think about Christmas and say, wow, that, that was amazing. That must have been incredible to have the second person of the Trinity conceived in your womb and you, and you carry the second person of the Trinity in human form in you. But did you not realize or do you not remember that the third person of the Trinity dwells in us? So we're not that different, male or female, from Mary when she conceived and bore God himself in her womb. We have been born again by the Holy Spirit and we carry in our hearts the manifest presence of God himself. So that we can read in 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In other words... Remember that you are now the tabernacle. You are now the temple. You are now the Holy of Holies. God has relocated. He's not filling the Dome of the Rock, that Muslim shrine over where the Holy of Holies used to be. Where is God? He's in you. He's in me. We are the temple. We are the Holy of Holies. Which is why Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? Now, this verse gets used a lot to say don't eat potato chips or McDonald's. And I honestly don't think that that's at all what this verse is about. But if, if you want to use this to sort of help curb your cravings, that's fine. Uh, but that's not what this is about. In its original context, it's about sexual purity. Would you, you're united, and again, this sexual metaphor, you are united with God through Christ, and you yourselves have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Therefore, would you unite yourself with a prostitute? That's the context here. But I think that the, the application can be more broad. Not so broad as to say don't eat McDonald's or Burger King, but... If we are to be sexually pure, that is the beginning of really a greater theme of if you are the temple, your body is the temple for God Almighty, should you not pursue holy living? Should I not? Do you know what happened to people who walked into the Holy of Holies in a casual or cavalier way? What happened to the two sons of Aaron when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the Holy of Holies? I don't think they're even in the Holy of Holies. They're just out at the entrance to the tent of meeting. What happened? Fire from the Holy of Holies came out and consumed them because they were being too casual. Well, now, whatever we do, we always do it as in the Holy of Holies. Always. Which means that I don't need to really read a bunch of rules to you and say you ought to be doing this and you ought to be doing that. All we need to be is mindful 
The way Mary must have been mindful of the fact when she carried God Almighty in her womb, I have a responsibility to live a holy life because the one in me is holy and I am the temple of my God. It's amazing, isn't it? When you put these three themes together that Luke has introduced at the beginning of his gospel, barrenness. We, like barren mothers of Israel, are dead in trespasses and sin. We can't bring life out of our deadness. We cannot save ourselves. We have no life in us. But the Holy Spirit comes upon us just as He came upon Mary and the Holy Spirit overshadows us the way that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and the one born to Mary was called holy and and great and he was the son of God and the one in us is the spirit of God and so God chooses to give us a second birth he he chooses by his goodness to take the life that is his and to implant it in our hearts once again though we cannot God can and he does He wills it. He chooses it for us. He regenerates us by the Holy Spirit. We're born again. And then, not only are we children, but we become temples. God makes us into a holy temple for His Holy Spirit. Mary carried the second person of the Trinity. We carry the third person of the Trinity. We have been regenerated. And God Almighty lives in us. Wherever we go, there goes God. Do, do your co-workers and your family and your friends say that of you? Wow. There goes so-and-so and there goes God. Not because you're God, obviously. But because God is in you and wherever you go, God goes with you. Christmas then, as we prepare ourselves for it, has, has a deep significance both externally and internally. Externally, it's good for us to reflect on what God has done, to, to just think back historically and think, wow, God came and he entered the world through a virgin and he did it by overshadowing her, making her womb into a holy of holies. And the son born to her, conceived in her womb, is the second person of the Trinity, God himself. That's all external and good, and we celebrate that. But there's a subjective, a more internal reality to Christmas. These themes of what God did in history are happening in each one of us. He, He makes us players in the Christmas story. Internally, we recognize that since the one born of Mary became a man, died for our sins, and rose again, God has invited us to share in the glories of Christmas. That He conceives a new life in us he overshadows us with his holy spirit and he turns us from sinners into temples therefore this christmas let us purify ourselves not because we have to but because it's what we want to do it's because what we long to do because we carry the holy one of god inside of us it's christmas reflect on these things pray about them that you may walk ever close with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done in time and space through a virgin named Mary, that your grace was upon her and you overshadowed her, turning her womb into a temple, a holy of holies, where you conceived 
the second person of the Trinity and made him into a man. He took on flesh, a human mind, a human soul, a human will, human emotions. He shared in our humanity that he might unite us in you. And now we call on him in his blood to cover us that the Holy Spirit might overshadow us regenerating us, imparting life to us where we once were barren, that we might become the tabernacle, the temple, the holy of holies, that wherever we go, there you go with us, in us, and through us. In light of these wonderful truths of your gospel, empower us by this same Spirit to live for you and for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.